Hey, this is Sean Leary, and welcome back to QC Uncut, number one rated podcast in the Quad Cities, and your only place for uncut, uncensored, unedited conversation. And that is going to be sorely tested, the parameters of which are going to be uh, pushed definitely during this podcast. It is, I'm celebrating my 50th episode of QC Uncut. This is the 50th episode of this podcast, and... I have a very special guest for the podcast. It is one of my oldest friends, Tristan Tapscott. Tristan and I have been one of the most notorious creative duos in the Quad Cities over the last 15 to 20 years. Done a number of uh, uh, interesting uh, and intriguing and groundbreaking creative projects, which have certainly had their their detractors as well as uh, people who have sung their praises but um, one thing that they have not been is boring they have always uh, been exciting they've always been interesting sometimes they have done magnificently other times they have crashed and burned as magnificent failures but nevertheless they have always been ambitious and we've tried to do something that's been different out of the box and something new to the area because I think that's what has driven us both since the very beginning is we were bored with a lot of the entertainment here in the Quad Cities in the early 2000s and we wanted to kind of shake things up. Tristan, thank you so much for being the guest on QC Uncut. Absolutely. 15 to 20 years, which is not a lie. Well, no, (laughs) because we we met when it was like 2001, 2002 we met. Yeah, and when you said it out loud, I was like, wow, that's we had more hair then and that's what I remember about us right I, I noticed that that picture that cj put up today which cj looks like he's wearing a lobster bib as a tie and you know you you look like you have uh you know horseshack's afro wig there you got on yeah it was a look for 2004 you know what i mean it was a the shaggy hair look was a thing in large ties apparently because we both had large ties on yeah, no, yeah i was like when did you guys you know do that do that rendition of all the president's men i don't know i don't know what is happening but you know it's a different time i guess yeah yeah because cj's got the the marmoset on his head too yeah we all did uh-huh. we all did yeah. but i think we were a little like i think we were in a show that we were growing it out for i think mm-hmm. i think that's what i could not tell you uh college is a hazy hazy point in my life yeah so i, I couldn't tell you yeah i just posted a picture from like 2001 2002 and i have like a giant shag of hair too yeah. so yeah uh-huh yeah so anyway, um, yeah, we met around, um, I remember it was, uh, like, yeah, it's 2001, 2002. It was somewhere in the early 2000s. Um, we were introduced by Chris Jansen, who was running Newground Theater at the time. And um, Chris had known you through theater, through theatrical productions. Then she obviously she knew me. I was the entertainment editor, editor for The Dispatch and the Argus at the time. I had written this script. Um, that was called Your Favorite Band. Mm -hmm. And it was a strange multimedia script unlike had ever been done before, which everybody always says, this is unlike something anyone's ever been done before. But it really was. It really very much was. And you were bored with a lot of the stuff (laughs) that you were being offered at the time in terms of scripts. And really, it was. People don't realize, like, this is almost, this is 18 years ago. The Quad Cities theater scene was just like a wasteland at that point. I mean, now it's it's pretty vibrant, much more vibrant, but it was like a total wasteland. It was like every production was... You had your bigger staple theaters that are still around, but you didn't have a lot of the independent theatrical companies that, that are there today. And I also remember around that time, um, it's worth mentioning, you named me Local Entertainer of the Year. 
and Johnny Depp was National Entertainer of the Year, and that was a big deal for me. So, yeah, uh, I was thrilled to meet you. (laughs) (laughs) Because I was a big Johnny Depp fan. Yeah, I was a big Johnny Depp fan, and, you you know, that was a cool thing for me to... uh, But, yeah, our paths had always crossed a little bit, I think, just on different sides of the the footlights, if you will. So, um, yeah, when I got your script, I was like, oh, my God, this is... I've been wanting to do something a little bit different and and not... um, not your traditional theater, you know, play or musical. And when I got that script, I was like, oh, my God, this is almost, like, impossible to do, which was exactly the... Why was it impossible? Describe it for the people listening who aren't familiar with your favorite band and what the show is about. Yeah, well, I mean, it, the, what I read was the sitcom pilot, and then what you and I sub- subsequently talked about was turned into a live show that was half live and half film, which, to my knowledge, had not been done in the area, at least successfully at all. Um, and so, luckily, I knew the Blue Box guys, Scott Beck and Brian Woods, who are, you know... Hollywood Elite uh, for writing Quiet Place and a few other things that are coming out this year. So they were actually, we got them on to film it, but what was so cool about the idea that you and I came up with was that parts of it would be live and then it would go seamlessly into those film segments. So it... For, as a theatrical piece, it like kind of broke open the, the doors on like what was possible in the area, and no one has really <laughs> done it since. People have tried. I've even tried, and it has not been nearly as successful as it was then, um, because it was so great because two characters would walk out of the what is now the speakeasy, and then there'd be a scene on the street, like on the wall. And it was like, so on paper, I was like, this seems borderline impossible to do, but that's exactly why we have to do it, so we can kind of... Uh, blow open the possibilities here in the Quad Cities. Well, and the reason for that is because I had written it in so many different formats. I had written it as a sitcom, I had written it as a movie, and I had written it as a play, as a stage play, and I wanted to include the scenes from each. And the problem was is that... So, like, we, I had all three, three scripts, and I was like, we can do this. Somehow really? well, we can do this. Because I remember getting them in the mail. That was before you could email yeah, a PDF. Yeah, that's, that's true. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's, that's, how, that's how long ago this was. We're, and then in between playing Oregon Trail, we discussed this, mm-hmm. this production. Um, but, it, but, yeah, it was um, a case of, okay, I wanted to have these car scenes and things like that, but we're like, how you know, I don't want it to be cheesy up on stage. And so it was like, okay, well, why don't we just film these scenes and then we'll include them so that way we can have the scenes like outside when they're walking outside or they're driving cars and stuff like that as actual filmed scenes and then just incorporate those into the live scenes. And I remember, it wasn't you or I, somebody else, I don't remember who, but they were like, that's never going to work. How the hell are you going to do that? And I'm like, well, why wouldn't it? Why, why wouldn't it work? You do lights down. Remember, I mean, every time you change scene, you you put the lights down and then you put the lights back up. Why don't you just put the lights down on the stage and then have the lights up on the on the screen and then shoot the movie and just have the movie cue in? I think everybody told us it wasn't going to work. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, but that was the nice thing about working with you and still working with you. It's not like we don't anymore. But we were like, yeah, okay, you say it can be done. Well, here's how we're going to do it and we'll just prove to you that we can and then you know it came together and it sold out two weekends and we added a third so that has to say something you know and kind of i i think it kind of laid the groundwork for a lot of what came after that i think most of our creative projects have begun on a dare <laughs> I think so too. it's usually like like you can't, we can't you can't do that oh yeah we can we'll do it okay well here we go well that's honestly a lot of my 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 projects and you know still they're like yeah it can't happen and i was like oh okay well mm-hmm. watch me and that's kind of how i live my life 
Well, and that's that, you know that was such a cool production. Your favorite band. I mean, we had such a great cast, and you know everyone behind the scenes. It was just a perfect storm, and everything was cool with that. And so we were all kind of on a high, mm-hmm. literally and figuratively, in regard to that. And um, and so we decided, um, hey, let's let's do let's put together a theater company and my Verona was born based off of you know the song my Sharona by the knack and Verona being a common spot for Shakespearean shows being held a common setting that's that's an that's an important uh, thing because what what our thing was about and I carried this on to my other adventures as well was that we wanted the show to feel like a rock and roll experience so you didn't want the audience just to go in to see a play. You wanted them to go in to experience something, and that's what your favorite band did. Because it was also important to note, like that was an environmental show, so some took place on the stage, some on screen, but then throughout the venue as well. There was no like set. This is the only place the action is going to take place. So what you and I kind of set up was that the energy was going to burst out, burst open the walls, and that was something that I think is super important. And a lot of theater companies have like harnessed that energy now. They've slowly adapted that, but at the time, for a long time. In fact, pretty much during the entire run of My Verona, we were the only ones doing it. We were the only ones that were doing that immersive theater. Nobody else around here was doing it. And then it seemed like when My Verona shut down um, in early 2008, then all of a sudden like, people started slowly adopting that same staging and trying to do the exact same things we were doing. Yeah, it was... Um and even, you know, when we would do something like we did Closer the next year, even that had a certain energy to it and like a visceral thing to it, even though it was a little bit more of a traditional um, thing. It was directed by Laura Adams, who did a wonderful job. But then we kind of blew open the door again with uh, the Dingo Boogaloo show, which was a sketch show, not the first of its kind in the area by no, any means. But the first of its kind with the content, and I think that's where that show got a lot of attention, (laughs) was because the content was a little bit um, blue for its time. It it was stunningly vulgar, and intentionally so. Well, Dingo Boogaloo, I wrote it to be, it was inspired by punk rock. It was, at the time, um, the country was in vast upheaval. It was, you know, written mostly 2004, 2005. And at the time, like, the the election had just occurred. We were in the middle of the Iraq War. People were starting to become really disillusioned with the Iraq War and George W. Bush and his presidency. And there was a lot of division in the country. And it just seemed the right time for a very Dada-esque punk rock type of show. And so literally... There were so many people protesting so many different things that I literally sat down with a list of all the things that were red, that were hot button topics that would enrage people. And I'm like, okay, we're going to cover every single one of these topics in this show and do it in a way that's so in your face and vulgar and and hopefully hilarious that people aren't going to know what to do with it. Well, and I think a lot of the the success of that. Let me let me press this. It did not sell as well as we wanted it to, but I still think it was an artistic success because a lot of the content was saying one thing, but really meaning another. Yes. And if you had that kind of brain, you could come in getting the political satire of it, or you could come in just getting the absurdity and the funny of it. But if you were really you know smart minded, you could get everything we were trying to say and how smart 
everything was. Or you could just be like, oh, they're just being stupid. Right. And that's okay, too. Whatever kind of entertainment you were looking for. But I think what was so smart about it was how it was playing on multiple levels. And that, to me, made it an artistic triumph. Well, and nobody... And the funny thing is, is that you're right. Some of the critics and, and the audiences... One of the things I'm so proud of about that show is that every single performance, at least one person walked out and demanded their money back, which was the point. I mean, the whole point of it was to try to be like this Andy Kaufman-esque experience, this punk rock type of show, where it was supposed it was supposed to be divisive. It was supposed to have, like, some critics love it and some critics hate it, and some audience members love it and some, uh, some hate it. And that's exactly what happened, is some people just absolutely loved it and came to up to us after the show and told us how hilarious was some people came to multiple shows to see it because they loved it so much and other people as previously stated hated it with such a burning passion that they demanded their money back uh midway through the performance if even that far so um and and in like some of this stuff i'm i'm surprised i mean may Maybe it was too subtle, but to me, I thought it was fairly obvious. Like, Chickenzilla. The whole, like, Chickenzilla was kind of like the signature character of the show. And to, the, I wrote Chickenzilla as kind of a parody of Paris Hilton, of reality TV show stars, who were famous for nothing. They were famous for just being famous. And so I was like, let's create this character that nobody knows, that has no accomplishments whatsoever other than being strange, and throw them out there and just everybody act as oh my god this is this huge star and it was a parody of that entire experience at the time and I don't think any very 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 few people actually got that 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 was the whole point of it yeah well I think it was it was at a time before you know the internet was a thing but YouTube was not you know what I mean so I think now that kind of humor is goes viral and I think it's more accepted but I think then that wasn't necessarily a thing. So, like, I don't think that everyone knew, unless you were, like, really immersed in pop culture, what social commentary we were going for a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. So, like you and I always say, we're always about 10 years ahead of that curve. Uh And if we would ever catch up to that damn curve, (laughs) we would be halfway successful with some things. But, you know, things that we do, even today... In 10 years from now, somebody will do and make a hell of a lot of money off of it. You know, what, that's just our, that's our thing. <laughs> what, are, what are some of the things you remember from that show? Because there were quite a few memories. That, that was a wild time. That entire, yeah. The entire experience of that show, of the Dingo Boogaloo shows, that sketch comedy, we, we did it for like a few, a few months. It was like there were two different shows. And so um, think- the, the man, the myth, the legend, Russell Lee, yes. of course, is, is someone that you know we should mention. He's a doctor somewhere. That's just bizarre to me because I remember being out with him in, in the bar in the district when the district still had bars. He was like Moses. He would walk into the bar and he would just part. Everybody, it was so weird because everybody knew Russell. He was a famous doctor in the area, and for some reason he decided to, to take off his scrubs and become an actor. Come play Oprah and various other characters in our stupid little show, and it was yeah. But what was so great about it? It was such an in- inhibited experience because no one felt silly no one felt like they were going to be made fun of they just kind of were like all right let's go for it let's do it um you know i i i did this <laughs> i did a weird strip tease as a guy named cooter to the song power of love which was always funny to me <laughs> because he was a redneck but he was listening to huey lewis in the news which i thought personally just on one level was just a hysterical 
bit anyway. But like the rock critic Spelling Bee was really funny. That was a little ahead of its time because a couple years later there's that very famous musical Spelling Bee that was basically the same Uh thing. Um, It was just one of those things that everyone just said, all right, fuck it, let's just try it and see what happens. And I think that was kind of what we were all about anyway during the time that that My Verona um, existed. Um, Yeah, it was such a... And I think... Even the the more traditional stuff we did after that, Tuesdays with Maury or This Is Our Youth um, or Oleana, like still had that like visceral rock feel to them, even though they were more traditional pieces. Um, And I think now this area would be a lot more um, accepting of some of the things that we were doing then. Um, Because blue humor wasn't something, you have to always remember comedy sports was in that building when we were there so and this was way before the blacklist and way yeah, before yeah, all yeah. these other local comedy nights and that's the thing is like so much like when you when we talk to this stuff that we did with my verona to people they're thinking of it in the context of now when there are all these things going on oh well that's similar to this yeah but you got to realize that none of that existed at all when we started doing it and we were actually the first ones to start doing it because, yeah, in, in the Speakeasy, there was no blacklist. There was no late night shows for Speakeasy. It was comedy sports, which was G-rated humor, and everything around here was G-rated humor. There was nobody doing blue humor at all, period. No, so th- – and I think <laughs> – I think even though some of them won't admit it, um, we kind of paved the way for that to be okay now. You know, it took years for the I think the area to get used to that, and I think we proved that again when we brought back um, the Dingo Show. We just it was reframed as Rock City. Uh-huh. That first couple times back, it was a huge success um, because again, it was it was smart humor. It was it was satire, but done in such a smart way that it was funny, but also <laughs> biting. And if you picked up on both, that's awesome. Or you picked up on one or the other, that's okay too, as long as you picked up on something. I think. Um, comedy can do a lot of things it can piss you off and also heal and i think we did both of those things so at the end of the day i think we accomplished what we set out to do one of the one of my favorite shows that we did with my verona and i know this is one of yours too the pillow man we were only the fifth theater in the world to do that show so um why don't you talk about that while I take this phone call? Because I actually have to take this phone call. This is what I mean, totally unedited show. Why don't you talk a little bit about The Pillow Man and some of the other productions, Tristan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So The Pillow Man by Martin McDonough, it's a crazy, crazy, um, just crazy black comedy that we were lucky enough to be able to, among the first theaters to do. I had seen it in Seattle, and I texted Sean immediately and said, um, hey, there's a show that if we can get a hold of this, we need to do it right now because it's an incredible piece, and also I don't think anybody else in the Quad Cities is ready for it or going to do it. So so we tried for a few months to get the rights, and we were able to nab them. And, yeah, it was like the fifth, fifth or sixth in the world to do it. So we did the Midwest debut of it um, over two weekends, had an incredible cast, Tom Wall, Jasper, okay. Chris Brown, um, Adam Lewis, just a, like the quartet of like your dreams and myself as well. And um, but we did it at after comedy sports, so it was like a three-hour show that started at like nine forty-five. So that was a little bit of of a of a different thing, but also it really added to the ambiance uh, of the show itself, um, and still remains in my twenty-some years of doing this as the um, as my favorite show that we've ever done. 
and one of my favorites I've ever done, period, because it was such a visceral reaction. Because again, we added elements of video and just um, involved the audience in it um, and like put the audience in the middle of the show. Because um, if you know the show, there's a lot of times where the, the, the main character goes through and tells stories. And so he would tell the stories walking through the audience with like a flashlight while images would throw up on the screen. and. Um, it was such a cool, cool, visceral thing. And it's been done a few times in this area. I produced it another time in the Quad Cities, and the Quad City Theater Workshop did a beautiful production of it as well. Um, it's one of those shows that, because of the content, it doesn't get done often, but it should. And it's a beautiful piece. And, um, oh, God, I just, I'm obsessed with that, that show. I would do that again right now, anywhere. Um, it's a beautiful piece. And I was really proud to like bring it to the area because um, that was kind of what Sean and I were about. We're bringing things to the Quad Cities that had not been done and the a kind of style that had not been done. And um, it worked perfect with our punk rock feel of, of our, and our theatricality. So, yeah, Pillow Man. Oh, I just like waxed poetic on Pillow Man. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. That show. Again, co- completely unedited, uncensored podcast. I had a, a phone call that I definitely had to take. Um, because my son is out of town and he's down in in Florida, they're about to get on a cruise ship, and I won't talk to him for three days. So I had to make sure I took that phone call. Um, but uh, you were saying? No, I was just saying that the Pillow Man was still the crowning achievement, and I talked a lot about uh, what the way we immersed the audience into it with Adam going through the audience with the flashlight and everything, right. and how we just had the most stellar cast ever for that. Um, and it was like one of the best shows I've ever been part of, still in the 20 plus years I've been doing this. Oh yeah, I think, and well, and I think it showed, um, it showed what we could do. I think it's interesting, like with my Verona, we never had a pattern. No. There was never um, a predictability to it. Um, you can look at the, the list of shows that we did, and they were all so very different from one another. You had your favorite band, which was this completely out there kind of it was really um it was funny because it was like a judda patow film before judda patow because when people started seeing it they're like like later on when people would read the script a couple years later oh this is like a judda patow movie but you have to remember i wrote this in like 1999 through 2002 and that was long before any of the judda patow movies came out it was long before two i think there was this thing in, in in the quad city theater scene where it was not okay to have that kind of like laid back almost blue just goofy humor on stage that wasn't a thing because a lot of the theaters in town wouldn't touch anything newer it was primarily there were some theaters that were starting to around that time chris jansen and, and green room and things um but i think it was so interesting because that humor now is just very much accepted like oh yeah that's well okay because of the way the, the way cinema has also changed i mean if you look at wedding crashers and old school and that kind of you know set forth a really new a style that that was not done in 2004 when your favorite band happened so there was a lot of things about just the trajectory of like from your favorite band to pillow man that you could see that we were just like well we're not going to repeat anything and then shortly after pillow man we were like well we've done everything that we kind of set out to do <laughs> and not that we kind of gave up on it by any means but it was just like all right we did what we did like you and I talk a lot about like how you reach a cap 
mm-hmm. or a plateau. You never want to stick around too long. I always, you know, because you know, we talked about that. I, I get restless, yeah. and people are, you know, people will be like, you know, well, why don't you continue doing that? And I don't know. I just get bored. Honestly, I just I get very restless creatively. I can't do the same thing. Well, it just I need to do something else. We reached a creative plateau, and we thought, well, we did everything, and unless there was another mountain that we could climb we just weren't interested in doing it and because of just the restraints that we had there was no mountain to climb we could have kept doing the same exact thing but you and I are people that are interested in climbing that next mountain right and if there's not a next mountain to climb then in that field then we'll go to a different field and climb that mountain right and that's how we work and um so, like, you know, people ask about it sometimes. They're like, why didn't you and Sean keep working together? I was like, well, we haven't stopped. Right. <laughs> but, you know what I mean? Like, there was just nothing left. And around that, you know, around soon after that, you had Jackson. And then I went and was doing stuff with my career, but then started, you mm-hmm. know, the, the district, which carried on a lot of the stuff that, that you and I had started. Mm-hmm. But you and I were in very different places in our lives. So it's not like we ever, like, stopped being in touch and stop working together but it was just a very different thing well yeah because i mean yeah once i became a father it was i didn't there were a lot of late nights with theater and you know i wanted to spend as much time as possible with my son Um, because you're never going to get that time back you can only spend time once and i as much as i love doing theater shows and producing theater i much rather spend time with my boy and experience that time fully of his early childhood i'm in that time now with harper it's like well i don't you know so my theater blessing was like a kind of a blessing in a lot of ways because it allowed me the time to to spend with harper so yeah it's an, it's cool how things work out but i mean we did a few other shows that i was really happy with um the bill hicks show i was extremely pleased with we did um the sandland diaries we were the first ones to do sandland diaries here um which was a great show adam lewis did a phenomenal job um, with the Bill Hicks show that was really cool being able to communicate with Bill's sister because we needed to um, talk with her and again this is like you know back in the old days where you had to write people letters and emails and stuff and so because Facebook hadn't really taken off and so I got in touch with I remember writing a letter to Bill Hicks's sister and asking can we do this and she wrote back by the estate which was such a fucking cool thing to like know that the show you were producing was actually sanctioned by the Hicks family. Like uh-huh. that's like bonkers. It is. You know what I mean? And that's that's yeah, that's a bonkers thing to to have done. Yeah, yeah. I love that show. Yeah, so. it, it was such a cool show. Um, and you know, um, we did the Eric Bogosian uh, show. Um, that sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Um, then we ended with one again. One uh show that i'm immensely proud of but was such a left turn from all of our other stuff and i think people would have expected well i mean we ended like my verona mach one and people would have expected us to go out with something really vulgar and crass and instead we picked tuesdays with maury as our final show somehow though but it was a it was such a we read this and it was such a wonderful show, and the actors that we had doing it were so good. It was like, that makes sense. this is precisely, well, it, it is. It's it like, is. It, it's precisely the opposite of anyone, of what anyone would have expected from us. And yet it was beautiful in the fact that it was completely, 
antithetical to what anyone would have expected from us because our whole existence was about doing the unexpected yes and i think bringing that show to the area for the first time because it's been done since was was so appropriate in so many ways and affected a lot of people i mean denny at circuit that's still one of his favorite things that he's seen in the area um yeah you brought him to tears yeah and um i love that like i thought adam and ray what adam and ray did with that show was and come back to cj again that's me and cj directed that Mm -hmm. uh but God, I love that show. I love it, and I think it was actually a very perfect like end cap to that first phase of all of that, because um, I think it, in a way, it kind of showed a artistic maturity too. That you know we had we had done all of these things and we had reached that plateau, and we were like, okay, here we are. Let's go out, out with some. I mean, it's super well written, but this really nice bittersweet ending, and then we'll just kind of drift off into the sunlight mm-hmm. for a while, and we did. And well, then we did. Then we came back and then kind of bookended with your favorite band, The Film, yes. which was a very different experience than your favorite band, The Live Show. Your favorite band, Live Show, was a perfect harmonic convergence of everything yes. coming together as it should. And your favorite band, The Movie, was a completely chaotic experience that we had to just power through through sheer force of will. Because anything that could have happened yes. badly on that production did and honestly it was the first time i had produced a full feature film and i have not produced one since if that says anything to you but i think if we would have had somebody documenting the making of that it would have been a fucking (laughs) academy award-winning documentary of some sort because literally anything that could have gone wrong did but there were some great moments too like there was a lot of people that had a lot of heart and soul into it but there was it was just one of those things that was just like it was just you know, fraught with chaos from day one. Well, actually, before that, because it, 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 one of the lead actors bail, bailed like a couple days before. It wasn't. Even, it wasn't a couple. It was the day before. The day before, the lead actor who is literally in every single scene of the movie. Okay. <laughs> so yeah, some of the things that happen with your favorite band. Um, one of the uh, locations that we were supposed to be at got condemned, so we weren't able to shoot in the location, so we had to switch the locations. We had various uh, actors who um, were going to be helping us out, and we're going to take some of these roles, and they ended up getting roles elsewhere. One of them moved out of the state, moved to Seattle. Um, also, um, the we had two videography teams that were going to do it, and then they had to back out. Um, Scott and Brian from Blue Box were originally going to do it, but then they ended up um, getting another job that was actually paying. Ours was not. Um, And so they had to drop out of it. Uh, Then we had another videography group that was going to handle it. They, again, got a paying gig, and they had to drop out of it. And so then um, at kind of at the last minute, we found a guy, Dave Whiskeyman, who was fantastic, who agreed, even though he already had paying gigs, Dave agreed to do it for free, which was the budget that we had, just because he wanted the experience of doing a feature film. And I'm sure he you know, came to regret it later on as he saw like what, uh, what a, a massive... Um, upheaval uh, that that was but yeah there was total chaos we had 
three of we had the lead actor who was in literally every scene drop out the night before we were going to begin production the night before it was sunday night i remember this he called me up and he was like i can't do it he was going through some marital issues at the time and his and had some other issues going on in his life that were admittedly a lot more important than our film and so it wasn't so much we weren't like pissed off at him it i had totally understood him having to drop out but nevertheless it was a really really difficult thing for us then we had our lead actress we had to she wanted to drop out after he dropped out and we had to talk her into sticking around and then we had another couple actors that had to drop out too within a couple days of that so we had to replace like four of the four of the top five actors in terms of screen time within a week and i remember because i was a production manager on that so i had done all the scheduling and all the locations and everything and we did delay shooting by like a day to make we sure did. we could we had do it. But I remember I had to shuffle like so many. I've never done anything that intense before. And it was, and I was working in a theater. I don't remember where the hell I was. Somewhere. But I didn't get back into town until the day of. We were supposed to start shooting on a Monday. We ended up shooting on a Wednesday to give, to give Lou, Lou Hare, who very gamely stepped in as the lead actor, um, to give him time to acquaint himself, give him a whole two days to acquaint himself with the script in which he was like playing in every, literally every single scene. I was only in town for like the two weeks too because I was in between things. I was in between gigs, so mm-hmm. I just, like we had we had a window, and that was what the window was. <laughs> it was just such a chaotic thing, but I think at the end of the day, it taught us a lot. And honestly, some of the lessons that I learned on that, I think I take with me now. It's just, it honestly, if the, you can't force a project if you don't have necessarily the right harmonic tools just don't do it don't try to force it just Mm -hmm. if you have the right people together then do it because if you don't then it's not going to be quite what you want it to be and i think we can all agree that it's not what we wanted it to be no it isn't i mean there are certain elements of it I'm proud of the fact that we did it. Yes. Because we, it was an immense amount of work, and we accomplished it. It's something that we accomplished, and we put out there. We put it out on DVD. The DVD looks good. It, it's you know, it's cool looking. Um, and there are some scenes that I thought were funny. There's some like the scenes between you and me. And it was interesting because the scenes like that we're in we're fine but it's a lot of it was because you and i being friends we've had that kind of like chemistry where we wrap back and forth but a lot of the other scenes just didn't have the chemistry because people had no rehearsal time there was absolutely no time for them to build any sort of chemistry some of the actors had done the done the roles in the in the stage show Mm -hmm. so i think that made a difference too because they already knew who they were and they just had this they understood them a little bit and the actors that we brought in that didn't weren't as familiar a lot of them did a great job but then there were some that just they didn't quite grasp what we were going for Mm -hmm. but um you know still learned a lot i had a great time i loved it and then you know it we moved on and it was all good. <laughs> and there you go. That was that you debuted here at Theo's Java Hut in December of 2017. I remember that. 20- no, 2007. 2007. Uh, yeah, 2007. December 2007. It debuted, had its world debut here at Theo's Java Hut. And there was a line out the door. Remember, it was packed. It was standing room only. Yeah. You know, it's played a few venues since and it's done pretty well and people seem to enjoy it. I look at it still and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have done that better. Uh-huh. But there, you know, the, the, the scenes with the band playing music are they're really great yeah. um <laughs> justin markson is a what there's a wonderful cameo by him in there um 
Ed Jonesy has a great cameo. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of great moments in it. So it's not, it, it's still very, it's it's still a lot of fun. I like the opening sequence, I think, holds up. The opening sequence where we're sitting there talking about how Andy Griffith's show is the uh, first reality TV show ever. And the band is in the midst of being, like, kicked out uh, forcibly and being threatened by Wayne Hess, who's got a, a tiny knife, who's chasing after him and going to get a gun. Um, I think that, wor- that, that works pretty well. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I, I like that project a lot. And, it, you know, it's a nice thing to say that you did. And, you know, shoot, I have a whole, I could write a book on all the projects I've worked on at this point. But that was, that was an interesting one to, to do for sure. So then we um, kind of, um, my son was born three months later in, Mar- in March of um, 2008. And that pretty much was the end of my Verona because for that, at that moment, because I, I took a step back. I'm like, I'm taking a sabbatical from doing any producing. I can't do work late nights, et cetera, et cetera. And you continued. You you, you continued on. You you picked up the torch yes. and went on to do um, a couple of other projects. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about those. Sure. Yeah. Well, from there, um, I got into doing stuff at Circa pretty heavily, and I met a fellow named Chris Wall Jasper. And him and I were looking at just producing something kind of a, as a one-off, and we wanted to do proof and maybe almost main. So we decided to f- say screw it, and we did something over at the green room, which is the old Bruin View space here. And um, which is funny because eventually I later took over that space with my theater. But then we formed the Harrison Hilltop and got a building over in Davenport. And we thought maybe we'd do it for a year. And nine years later, the theater was still there. Um, But in that first year was kind of a a little bit of a revolution because we brought Rocky Horror to live to the area for the first time. Um, Within those first couple of years, we also brought Rent to the Quad Cities. Um, we did a, I mean, Sunday in the Park with George Sweeney Todd was a big accomplishment. Starting yeah, with Tom Wall Jasper. Starting Tom and Shelley Wall Jasper, which was amazing. Um, and then Chris left and he went to Chicago for grad school and stuff. And then, yeah, man, we, we did so many things over in Davenport and then we kind of outgrew that space a little bit. So we moved over to the old Bruin View space here in Rock Island. And then so we were for a long time. And there we did, oh man, we did so many uh, God, I can't. Even, we just did. I mean, in that in that nine years, we did over a hundred productions, um, and some of them were great. Some of them were not. Um, um, a lot of them were Quad City debuts. It wasn't quite the my Verona feel as far as um, making sure that we were always on the cutting edge. But it still it became. I wanted to produce big musicals in a small space, so that the energy felt like it was gonna just break the walls down that was kind of my thing and so that's what we did is we took what was seemingly impossible and made it possible and um and that's what we were known for i would announce like hey we're going to do such and such show and somebody would be like you're never going to pull that off okay watch me you know and that was kind of the idea um so for nine years that's what we did um and we moved over into the Rock Island Argus building, and that's was what that was our bitter end. But what we lost over there was we were known for you know cramming fifty people into this small space to see this musical that's larger than life that really should play it somewhere like Music Guild, but we're going to make it work on this postage stamp of a stage. But when we moved over to the Argus, like it was expansive and big already, so that feeling that we once had was lost, um, and we were no longer an indie art house. It was like oh now we're a 
a massive, you know, beautiful theater, and that's not what we were about. Also, it was expensive as hell, so, you know, there's no way we could afford it. <laughs> so, but I think at the end of the day, like, it was a good thing that we did it. But what I take away from a lot of that was just some of the stuff that we, we created, like the original production of A Christmas Carol that Danny and I wrote, which still plays in the country today. It's a beautiful piece. It was aired on PBS. Like, that's a, an amazing accomplishment to have a, a piece that you helped write, you know, on a local television station over the holidays that's really cool um you know there was a gospel show that that we've done a number of places now that people really enjoyed um there were some beautiful productions that we did that came out of that there was a production of the tempest that we did that was just amazing the directing stuff on that was just insane and the talent that was the thing too the talent level that the district had was just kind of out of this world because we got a lot of like pros that were willing to to do stuff for very little money or no money because of the experience that we were giving them i mean we did shit like xanadu (laughs) like you know that was like that was a fun show musical yeah it's a musical on roller skates and you know we brought stuff like parade to the area um we did the pillow man as well um a lot of stephen sondheim pieces the rocky horror show of course um spam a lot you know was a great one um but i think you know what we were what our legacy is now is just that we brought Rocky, <laughs> Rocky Horror Show live. And that's something we discussed doing with My Verona, but we never got around to doing. I think the two big shows that we wanted to do with My Verona that we did not get around to doing were Rocky Horror and Reservoir Dogs. Yeah. And yeah, and a lot of that had to do with just where could we do them because we knew we weren't going to be able to do them in the speakeasy space. Um, I'm still going to do Reservoir Dogs one of these days. It's going to happen. But, um, you know, it. We accomplished so much with that little bitty theater, and I'm, it was such a cool thing to be able to be part of. Yeah. Do you regret moving out of there? Do you think that the theater would still be, would have existed if you had stayed? It's so weird, yeah. the parallel between you and Devin Hansen in that same exact same space. If Devin yeah. had, had, you wonder, if Devin had not left that little yeah. Bruinview space, he was so successful there, and then he moved to the Rocket, and it just became a money pit, and like less than six months later, he was out of business. And it was the same thing with you. You were in that little space, and things seemed to be great. And then you moved to the Argus, and within again, I think it was within six months, you were out of business. Yeah, no, honestly, that I agree. I think Devin would be open, and I think I'd be open. Um, what 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 tends to happen, and, and, and it's tough because you have a lot, a lot of people around you, kind of cheering you on to go bigger, go bigger. You can do more. Go. And you know, at the time. I always had like a little bit, little bug in my ear being like, don't, what you have is working, don't do it. But there's a lot more people shouting, hey, go, go, go. And a lot of those people don't like to admit that they were shouting then, but you know, whether or not that's neither here nor there, but they were. And I think hadn't we made that move, we'd still be. But see, I say that, but now I'm also thinking, I'm like, it is so much work that I think I probably would have folded it anyway, <laughs> or at least handed it over to somebody else because I value the time with my daughter and I value time that I get to do projects on my own, you know, because there was a time where I wasn't doing as much at Circa or just professionally anywhere because I was solely, you know, really focusing on building that. And so I'm, I'm always torn on that because I, I don't miss all of the crazy amount of work. I, I, I miss being able to provide like joy to people because that was my favorite thing was like seeing the idea go from something i written on a piece of paper to opening night that was great 
and also the joy that it brought people because I know that that theater brought joy to to artists and to patrons and that was a wonderful thing for me um, but I don't miss a lot of the the work and a lot of the stress that it put on me it aged me <laughs> really fast um, and now you know I love my time with Harper so I wouldn't want to have that taken away because that's that's important to me now so um, but I think it would have would be thriving, yeah, today. How much do you want to address any of the, the haters, as they say in modern parlance, Tristan? Sure. Like there, obviously, there has been a lot. There was a lot of there. There were a lot of haters, Tristan. Yeah, like uh, when the whole district thing blew up. Yes, but let. But I do want to address before you address the haters, Tristan. I do want to address one of my favorite rumors of all time. Oh, this is. Oh, I mean, there are so many. There are so many rumors that I love that I have that I have had spread about me over my, you know, 20 years of being a public figure here in the Quad Cities. Um, being the official Coke dealer for Ribco was one of them. The, uh, the official Coke dealer. Yeah. As if Terry Tilka has, a, has, you know, had an auction to see who was going to be the official one. There were many amateur Coke dealers, but I was the official Coke dealer for Ribco, allegedly. It was one great rumor. But I think my favorite rumor of all time was that... <laughs> You and I, and this rumor became so pervasive that it even got brought up in a Channel 8 news meeting at one point. They were thinking about pursuing it as a story until common sense prevailed and they were like, "This, there's no substance to this. This is a total bullshit rumor. But the rumor, of course, was that you and I were pimps yeah. and we were... We had uh, an escort service slash bordello in the yes. basement of the Argus building, which wow. if you've ever been in the basement of the Argus building, you realize people don't want to go down there, let alone shed clothing and copulate. There's yeah. nothing anyone wants to do in the basement of the Argus building. Yeah. Alone is funny. But what's funnier about it is it allegedly was taking place like a year and a half after the theater. Like I have had not had access to that building since June of 2016. This was also taking place. Was it last summer, 2018? Right. There were still rumors going around that we were still that we still had an escort service at so, uh, whorehouse in the basement of the Argus building. Two years after the fact. We were still doing like I've had so many rumors go around. That is my favorite one because like there, the, I don't even know how that starts, and I don't even know. Well, I do know who it came from, but like I just, <laughs> it's just like where did they think of that? I mean, it, it, like there's no, there's it's so evidence free, but it's so fantastic, and in so the detail that people and the the thing that's great about it is that people b believed it, obviously, or there was some sort of part of them that thought well this could be somewhat plausible oh, to pass God. it along that yeah. so many people pass that rumor along oh, and it's so one great. of the it is it's one of the most ridiculous stories so great but and it's such a wonderful thing because i'm like somebody had to sit down and actually think about what is the most ridiculous thing we could say that people would probably believe and some people actually believed it and it's funny but you know a lot of anything i what i say to a lot of those people is like well you know like you can't deny that you had a good time and you can't like <laughs> In our bordello in and our escort bordello. service. You can't deny that you had a good time you know I mean? in our you, bordello. You like, there, social media, there is picture-proof evidence of, like, you know, you being involved or you having a really good time. And, like, it's just funny to me, like, how perception changes when you, no, when you are no longer in a position to offer somebody something. That's always interesting to me. So, you know what I mean? I don't really care. Like, I, nobody really knows what went down besides me and... 
No, that's okay with me. I think it's funny. Like I'm just between me, you, and Ed Jonesy Jones, who was our doorman. Yeah, I'm just like I'm just letting it go at this point. You know, it's been years, and anything you know, financial or legal, I dealt with on my own, and no one dealt with that but me. And uh, if anybody really wants to know, they'd ask. But a lot of people prefer to just kind of like believe whatever they want to hear and that's okay with me like i'm totally fine with that i've moved on with my life i'm doing other things i'm doing great things with my career now you know some things i can talk about some things i can't um as an actor and it's great you know um and i think um yeah i'm doing really really well and you know there's a quote and i cannot remember who even said this but you know i'm paying attention to the people that didn't clap when i'm starting to win again so i'm paying really close attention to that and some people have already reached out to me just given some of the connections I have wanting me to give them a leg up and I say absolutely not because I'm paying attention to those people real close well it's you and I have had very many parallel experiences in our lives and I had this exact same experience like from 2009 through 2011 Mm -hmm. that was kind of like you know my really really difficult point in my life where I got let go at the Argus and there were all these rumors about why I got let go and blah, blah, blah. But the truth of the matter is, is it was a newspaper. They were laying people off. I mean, they were pushing people out the door and forcing them to take retirement. Yeah. They had just let 70 people go like the previous summer. I was a middle manager and making top of my pay scale. That's why they let me go. Sure. Walked in the office. The first thing Joe Payne and Donna Herbig, the HR person, said was, this has nothing to do with your talent or how we feel about you as a person. This is solely a business decision. Well, there you go. Um, But that, obviously, same thing, where being the entertainment editor and a gatekeeper to that kind of media, everybody wants something from you. Mm -hmm. They want publicity. They want to get in the newspaper and everything else. And the minute you can't provide that for them, you find out who your real friends are. And I found out, you know, who the people were. And then of course I went through divorce and some financial issues tied in with that and, and custody battle and things of that nature. The things that, you know, adults go, it's adulting, hashtag adulting. Um, but you know, adulting and like, you know, going through some of the stresses that happen, um, from time to time with everyone. A lot of people go through these things. Um, and, but it's interesting. Like, you see, like, who sticks by your side. Yeah. Who's remains your friend. Yep. And, you know, I was the same way. It's like, you were one, somebody who always was always my friend. You always were with with me. Um, Linda Cook, Matthew Clemens, Carrie Tucker, Scott Morshauser. These are all people that, you know, were always my friend, regardless of what I could or could not do for them, quote-unquote. But then there were a lot of people that magically disappeared who were my best buddies but you know when i could help them out with something but you know once i couldn't they they were gone and i i I know it was the exact same way with you oh yeah it's the exact same thing i'm just paying attention to those people and seeing what happens and you know one day when when i do have a little bit more success and could possibly help them out i'll be sure to say no you know that's where we're at so and i'm totally okay with that it's not it's not i mean i can be mean but at the same time i'm like you were not there so why should i help you out now like just because i have something to offer again no i'm good you know um because i'm doing really well like (laughs) you know uh career-wise i'm doing quite well again so um you know i'm really happy and uh you know come see holiday Inn at circuit 21 you'll see how well i'm doing well there you go i was i was kind of waiting for this yeah because we okay so then we got we got back in we jumped back in did my verona again for a little while just for the fun of it really we did rock city we did um 
uh, Shots to the Heart, which was a really funny Valentine's Day show. That sold out. We had to turn away like 100 people at the door at uh, the Speakeasy. Then we did Rock City, which sold out. Um, several performances. And again, it was kind of fun to like do sketch comedy again. And actually have a ton of people come out and appreciate it. And um, then it just got to the point where it was like, okay, it's time to take a step back. Because it, it, we kind of came back, could have milked it, and could have kept doing it. But what was the point? I mean, yeah. I don't know. I had, I had fun doing it. And then it just got to where it was like, okay, we did it. We well, came back. We did it. We proved our point, And then it's time to move on and do something different. And it wasn't any, any, any secret that I was having some issues in my personal life around the same time. So it was, it was smart for everyone to just kind of stay, take a step back at that time and focus. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of those experiences have like kind of put us where we are today. Like, if we wouldn't have had any failure then you don't learn anything from a success. Like, as I'm sitting here talking with you, I'm thinking about, yeah, we did a lot of really great things, but in my mind, I'm like, oh, shoot, that was a good lesson, that was a lesson, that was a lesson. Mm -hmm. And so maybe even failure is not the right word. I think it's just that there's lessons in there. And I think that's something that we all take with us. And, like, you know, people ask me about the theater all the time when it closed. They're like, oh, it must have been really... It was like, yeah, it was hard to walk away from something I had built. But at the same time, like, what I walked away with was, like, a playbook of things not to do, (laughs) you know? And like, so that, that carries with you and it's good. And for, it's good material for my book. (laughs) (laughs) I always say that too. So how did you like going way, way, way back? How did you, when did you first get into the theater? When did you first become interested in being a performer when you were a kid? Yeah, man. Like I loved movies, was obsessed with movies and I would always act them out. So like I would set up, um, like stages in our basement with like lawn chairs and like doors on crates and like we would hang sheets and stuff hang flashlights from the ceiling i was real creative but i would act out films like i remember my my, my brothers and i did a stage adaptation of multiplicity that was <laughs> yeah no kidding no kidding um and then we get backdraft and like the wizard of oz like i would always act out films and i would always want to pretend to be other people and my mom one day was like you know you could do that like they're just actors like if you want to be all these different kinds of things because i'd always change my mind what i wanted to be i wanted to be a scientist when i saw jurassic park i wanted to be this you know firefighter when i saw backdraft things like that and they're like dude you just like i wanted to be dick tracy when that came out you know they're like just be an act like that's an actor and i was like oh no shit people pay for that great um so then i it was kind of just you know I, i played baseball and basketball and things like that too but eventually i had to give a baseball in the summers to do theater and i'm really glad that i did um but yeah man i just always like to play pretend like that was just always my thing like being somebody else for like a minute is always really exciting to me and it's really cathartic and um i'm my, my therapist would tell me that there's a lot of things wrong with that but he um <laughs> he's also a great guy and a theater person as well so um he understands but um yeah man it was just it all started because i was like to pretend and um and i still love to pretend so it's something that that i can't shake and i can't let go of and i've been lucky enough to do it pretty much full-time for 15 years so what are some of your favorite roles and why did you like them oh man well i, I wax poetic about the pillow man i loved doing that show um loved doing legally blonde at circa um i did the show boeing boeing a couple years ago at circa that was wonderful uh rent of course the rocky horror show is always a just a joy but the, the show i'm doing right now um holiday and the role i have in it's like perfectly tailored for me like it's a 
character role, but it's also a leading man, but it's like a quirky leading man. So it's like, I fit right into it. Um, and I love the music. It's old, you know, Irving Berlin tunes. Like you can't go wrong with it. It's just an old school musical that you don't see a lot that doesn't require a bunch of high tenor belting. You know, it's just like an old school musical that I really appreciate because it's so well written. And so I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And, you know, next I'm doing Sheer Madness at Circa, and that's always a favorite of mine too. I kind of like, I have a list of things that I've always enjoyed doing, um, but I kind of just enjoy whatever I'm doing in the moment too because I think that's important. Um, but if I had to pick like one favorite, it's Cornelius Hackle and Hello Dolly. I love Hello Dolly more than like I should. Like <laughs> I could sing that entire score, every role unapologetically. And I don't know what it is about that show, but man, that, that show to me, it's full of bangers as the kids would say. Every song is a banger. Bangers. 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 So yeah, man, I just enjoy what I'm doing. So right now I think Holiday Inn is great and um, hopefully people can come out and see it because I think it's, it shows what Circa is capable of doing. And um, it's a beautiful theater and you know a lot of people are like well yeah that show will be done here eventually and i'll be like yes but you haven't seen it like you've seen it at circa circa is the tops when it comes to a show like this because they can draw on talent from across the country to do a lot of the dancing and oh that's incredible show it really is the costumes the set everything is just you know those costumes are from broadway so i mean they're legit so it's a really great show and i and i hope that they can find an audience for it because i think it's important if you could go back and change anything, what would it be if you could, if you would, if there's anything you can go back and go, I regret doing that, or I wish I would have done this or whatever. Let's yeah. Yeah. Artistic. Right. Let's, let's stay with artistically. <laughs> yeah. We'll go anywhere. We'll go elsewhere. That could get, that could get hairy. Um, Honestly, it would be not moving out of the um, Bruinview space and just fixing the floor because a lot of the reason we had to move out of there had to do with there was some issues with the floor um, that the ownership wasn't ready to fix at that time. I think they fixed it now. Um, I would have just raised the money just to fix it because um, we had some city officials come in and when they did their inspection kind of talk us out of it a little bit. Um, but I would fix it because I think uh, the space was great and I loved it. And um, you know, even if it wasn't my theater, there'd still be a theater in there today because right now it's empty, you know, like so much of Rock Island, unfortunately. But um, I would do that. And also, like, I would just urge the city council to make sure that the buildings in Rock Island are affordable, honestly, because that, I think, kills a lot of arts organizations is when they're gouged for money, you know. You're already not making a lot as an arts organization, but when you're gouged for that kind of money, then it, it hurts you immensely. I think that's one thing people don't unless you've done theater or done production you really don't understand because nobody under, very few people understand what a producer does anyway right. it's one of those oh wow cool a producer people are like what the hell does a producer do the, the product, being a producer is like one of the most strenuous jobs and it's one of the most taxing jobs because you're responsible for everything behind the scenes and people don't realize like how much time it takes to do a show just in general they think that you just kind of like turn the lights on and walk in and get up on stage and act but there is there's like an incredible amount of of, of effort yeah especially at this level like there's no I, I had a i had a wonderful army of humans um you know doug coochley and anthony natarelli to name two of them that were just amazing people behind the scenes helping me out but i mean even then i mean the late nights are just absurd mm -hmm. you know and it just takes a lot of time and willpower and there's no economy of scale really to do any of that it's all hand you know you have to do it yourself um 
and it's you know just like simple things like gathering props or gathering costumes like uh, it doesn't seem like it's a lot but like picking the right costume picking the right looking prop like those things take time and you know that's on top of building something and doing the lighting and things and there was there were times where i was doing all of that um sometimes because i was just a control freak and i wanted to not that there was people not around willing to um but you know i had some friends that were willing to do a lot of it but it was it's an insane amount of work to do it and you know there's very little money involved in it too and the, but the amount of money it takes is absurd um and a lot of it has to do with just like what the rent is in your building you know so the theater companies and like comedy sports being nomadic now too you know i totally understand where they're at on that and um places like Prenzy that don't have a space like they've been able to thrive for years and years and years because they don't have to worry about the overhead because rent is outrageous in the in the downtown area what would you like to do that you haven't done up to this point? What goals do you still have? Um, you know, I kind of want to get back into producing on occasion, not not on a full-time basis. I think there's a few projects that I know you and I have talked about in the past that I'd really mm-hmm. like to get going. And, you know, making the transition more into film and television, I think, is kind of my goal now. Um, there's a little bit more money involved in that, and you can kind of just buy a little more freedom with it. Um, but honestly... At the end of the day, I didn't set out to be famous or anything. I just set out to get paid to pretend. And honestly, if I can just keep doing that, then that, to me, is a success. Any 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 last words here as we wrap things up? No. We haven't even quoted Wedding, wedding Crashers no. at all. And it's just kind of funny because like, a lot of our texts are basically like long strings of quoting Wedding Crashers oh, no. or 40-Year-Old Virgin back and forth. I was watching Hangover the other night, and that is just as easily funny as Wedding Crash and everything else. Like, that is such a w- great movie. That's 10 years old now, too. Uh-huh. It's crazy. Um, no, man, I, I'm, I'm excited. This is your 50th 50th podcast. That's very exciting. I'm very excited about that. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate that. And, you know, hopefully uh, I answered all of the things people wanted to know. Probably not, because most of them are speculation and bizarre fantasias, but okay. But uh, yeah, man. I'm, Any other rumors you'd like to address? No, I think we're good. I think that's the that's that's the main one that will make it into my book for sure because oh, yeah, that's the funniest damn one. Yeah. A lot of them are just kind of like, well, there. Okay, well, that's whatever. Right. I can understand where people would get some idea with that. Like some of them make sense, right? But that one, no idea. Yeah, no idea. So, but yeah, I'm I'm thrilled with with where my life is, and like a lot of people hate that because they don't think I've suffered enough. Like that's a narrative that's out there, and I'm just like, well, you don't know what I went through the last couple of years anyway. I'm right. putting everything back together, and I'm doing pretty damn well at it. So I'm pretty proud of myself. <laughs> so anything else? Any any other famous last words here, Tristan? No, I'm wrapping things up. I think I've talked about myself for enough to people be like, ugh, this is nauseating. <laughs> so I think I'm good. <laughs> so tell us before we hit, uh, sign off. Holiday Inn. It's at circa 21 through July 20th, right? right. Okay, where can people go for tickets and uh, show times and all that kind of jazz? Circa21.com or find them online. And uh, there's a BOGO going on through Sunday, July 7th. So if you hear this before then, call over there, tell them I sent you, and you get one ticket for free when you buy one. So hey, that's a deal, isn't it? Huh? And they get to see you in your snazzy blue suit. Your electric blue suit and your straw hat. That's right. They get to see me in many, many clothes. (laughs) Which is how I prefer it. (laughs) As opposed to the alternative, which which they have to go to the basement of the Argus to see. Exactly, yeah, the uh, basement arc. (laughs) That's such a... uh, It's always so funny. Also, it's usually filled with water. 
So there's, exactly. you know what I mean? Like there's water is moldy newspapers down there. God, I've been down there. It is not attractive. No, it's disgusting. No, it's just, just frightening down there. Um, yeah, what a weird time. Also, that building's still empty. So hey, there you go. Glad you kicked me out. Bye. Yeah. Well, there's a business opportunity there for yeah. someone else who wants right. to open up a bordello. Yes, exactly. But yeah, nope. I don't really regret a whole lot, and I think it's all lessons. And I'm thrilled with how things are going in my life now. So, things are great, man. Cool, cool. Thanks a lot for being a guest on the 50th podcast of QC Uncut, and thank you for listening to the show. Once again, QC Uncut, the place to go for uncut, unedited, uncensored podcasting, information, conversation with local newsmakers. I'm Sean Leary. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.